I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, I'm and I are going to catch up and then we're going to talk about what's going on with religious exemptions and COVID-19. Also, we're going to discuss the Great Resignation. And then we feel like we need to touch upon what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Later on the pod, we're going to visit with one of our very good friends, Marv Knox, who is actually retiring after an incredible and illustrious career. Stay tuned. Hey, Autumn, guess what time of year it is? Halloween. No. Thanksgiving? No. It's too early for Christmas. People keep telling me. It is a little too early for Christmas. No, it's the time of year when nonprofits ask for money. You know, Mitch, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it is an exciting time of year because even here at Good Faith Media, we need to, from time to time, ask our listeners and readers to help support this great effort of keeping this message alive. Yeah, the voices of inclusive people of faith are tragically underrepresented, leaving many feeling alone. And then we layered in this global pandemic, which pushed all of us further into isolation. But Good Faith Media provides a space for our voices to unite and impact the world for good. And our daily news and opinion pieces provide thoughtful reflection from spiritual and thoughtful leaders around the world. Our Nurturing Faith Journal is a print magazine that circulates six times a year to churches and households nationwide, delivering thoughtful analysis, inspiring features, and Jesus-focused Bible study curriculum. And if you like this podcast, Good Faith Weekly, make certain to subscribe to more exciting and challenging podcasts brought to you by the Good Faith Media Podcast Network. Gather around your device as GFM continues advocating for inclusion for all, justice for all, and freedom for all. You can find more information about this at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash donate. Autumn, how are things in your world? Well, Mitch, I need to tell you that I was able to mark myself as safe from taking four children to get flu shots last night. Oh, my goodness. Well, I want you to know I am marked safe because in my left arm, I now have a booster. In my right arm, I now have a flu shot. So I am vaxxed up, baby. That's like the 2021 superhero pose, right? Like a little bit of soreness in both arms. Right. I've been kind of walking around the office you know, with the short sleeves on, showing the guns and stuff. With the Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm glad that all four kids, that, that you didn't run out of the uh, doctor's office or somebody didn't throw something at the nurse. Um, there was some punching. There was some <laughs> holding down. And who, was the doing, kid... who was doing the punching? Or should we edit this yeah. out? <laughs> and the kids had some ruckus, too. <laughs> Josh met us there in his, like, you know, nice work attorney clothes. And I was like, rookie. <laughs> You're going to have snot tears all over that shirt. So here's the thing. No one likes to get a shot, right? No one's like, ooh, this sounds like a great time to get a needle in my arm. But as I explained to my children... The alternative is much worse, and so sometimes you have to make sacrifices. Well, knowing your kids and how smart they are, I am a little surprised that one of them at least didn't make the argument for a religious exemption. Hugo tried. (laughs) He really did. Yes, he did. I don't know if it was as much a religious exemption as a mama please exemption. It did not work. Uh, Well, speaking of religious exemptions, have you seen the news, the latest news? A Washington State coach, Nick Rolovich, was fired this week because he refused to get a COVID-19 vaccine after the governor of uh, Washington, um, after the governor of Washington 
created a vaccine mandate for all state employees. And he and football coaches are state employees. So that was new to me. I didn't realize that football coaches were state employees. Really? You didn't realize that? I mean, no. almost all states, the highest, play, the highest paid state employee is the football coach. Got it. Certainly the case here in Oklahoma. Uh, by a mile, yes, <laughs> or a yard, or however, whatever football terms that would be. <laughs> that's right. That's I have right. No, we're a soccer family, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's tricky because I feel like the the freedom of choice phrase has sort of been turned around on us mm-hmm. a little bit here recently, and I do understand that there are people who have a legitimate reason why they can't get a, a vaccine. And right. I, and I do, I get it. They have a medical reason. hundred percent. In fact, I did a little research on uh, this topic, Autumn. Mm, tell me about research. <laughs> well, I Googled it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, in fact, I wrote my article about it this week, uh, at goodfaithmedia.org on Thursday, uh, talking a little bit about the relationship between faith and science, but in particularly some of the arguments that are being made regarding religious exemption. Um, Religious exemption are, uh, people are able to file for religious exemption under the 1964 Civil Rights Act that uh, employers cannot discriminate based upon religion. But there are some requirements and rights that employers have uh, enabling them to either grant or deny these exemptions. And it all has to do with what is a sincere religious belief. And so, as you just said uh, a moment ago, very eloquently, that there are indeed sincere folks out there who have a religious conviction uh, about medical care. And I think that those need to be honored and those need to, you know, be uplifted when they are inquired about and applied for. But at the same time, you just can't do it willy-nilly to say, I don't like this one thing, therefore I'm saying that this is a religious conviction. Because the employer has the right to kind of prod a little bit to see about if this is a sincere religious belief, Uh, is, you know, simply asking the question, what is your theological justification? for, uh, you know, asking for an exemption? Or is, are, you, are you against all vaccines or just this one vaccine? And that's, that's, right. where the, that's where it's really causing a lot of stir because a lot of these folks who are applying for exemptions have been vaccinated throughout their life. They've had their children vaccinated, but all of a sudden this one vaccine that's been politicized is now a religious matter, which it's not. Right. Are you, are you taking Tylenol when you have a headache? Are you doing these other sort of medical things that have similar um, chemical compounds and formulaic issues? So, yeah, I completely agree. If we could ever get the politicalization out of the vaccine and just have, like our uh, pastor from Oklahoma said, knee-to-knee conversations mm-hmm. with people about the actual science behind the vaccine, then I think we could make some headway. But we just we started off on the wrong foot. Yeah, I agree. Well, not only are people getting fired, but some people are resigning. But that leads to another conversation that you and I want to have. And that's about the great resignation that's going on across the country. Now, we've talked about what's going on more particular among clergy here in the United States with clergy resigning. Uh, it seems like one every week that we know of yeah. and the pressure and anxiety that the last 18 months has brought upon them. Well, there's also resignations going on all across the country at all levels of profession. So what do you think about that? What's going on? Well, I 
I think it's capitalism a little bit. What do you mean capitalism? It's capitalism because for so long, the working conditions, the the pay that was happening didn't increase with the times, with the living, the cost of living. And so you have laborers who realized that and either went to find another job or actively looking for another job. And there have been some gaps. We also have had 700,000 people die of a, pa- of a pandemic. And then we have also closed our borders. And a lot of these positions that have not been filled were frequently filled by migrants. And so right. I, I think there's, there's a trifecta going on. Yeah. You know, and there certainly, and I agree with everything you just said. Um, you know, one of the things that I think might happen with this great resignation that it could be followed up with a resurgence or a renewal of entrepreneurship. Uh, that people who are tired of working for big companies, big corporations have finally said, you know what, I think I can do this in a new way, a more creative way, a more efficient way. Sustainable. Sustainable way. I think we're about to see a big boom in the next five to six years of newer, smaller companies that are more concerned about the environment, uh, more concerned about uh, providing their employees with a living wage. I think it's really going to be exciting in the next five years. So, yes, we're going through a great resignation, but I do think that there is hope on the horizon. Or at least that's, that's what I'm praying for. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think we all need to make sure that we are checking our shaming because I see this a lot in conversations, both in person and online, um, shaming people for um, for not continuing a job that doesn't provide them a livable wage. Right. And I would just like to say that just like God's love for us, like there is enough. There's enough to go around. And someone asking for um, a higher wage at an hourly job doesn't mean that, like, let's say a teacher can't also advocate for having a, li- a living wage. And I think pitting those kind of positions against each other is really the wrong approach to this. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, we need to ch- check our privilege at the door sometimes and also just show a little kindness and grace. I mean, good night. Uh, you know, we've been through a lot as a people over the last 18 months. And so we've got to figure out how to move forward. And the shaming is just absolutely ridiculous. Well, speaking of shaming, there's another topic I want to talk about. <laughs> Shame. The Southern Baptist Convention may be imploding before our eyes. You down with SBC? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> Every time you start saying it, I just rhyme in my brain. It, it's a ruckus. It is. The, um, the leader of the SBC, the chairman of the, uh, or president of the executive committee, the Reverend Ronnie Floyd resigned this week after it was decided that uh, the convention, the executive committee in particular, would waive privilege. After they decided to waive privilege at the behest of the convention, uh, their lawyers abruptly quit because what lawyer is going to represent somebody that waived for privilege? Well, and not any that want to stay within the bar association. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's, it really is a dilemma because, because of their inability to be transparent over the last several decades regarding clergy sexual abuse. Uh, they put themselves into this position. 
and now uh, they're in a world of they're, they're just in a mess. I mean, it's absolutely in a mess. And so I don't know what the future is. You know, I will say this. I am glad that I am not a part of it any longer. Uh, they shoved me to the door a long, long time ago, and um, now I am very thankful they did so because they have created this mess and they're having to deal with it. But I do want to say that in all of this, and we need to realize that there are still victims of clergy sexual abuse uh, because of the neglect uh, of the SBC and other organizations as well. Nobody is exempt from this. Uh, that uh, there have been a lot of people hurt throughout the decades by clergy, and it's just a shame. We've got to do a better job uh, when it comes to clergy sexual abuse. The whole power dynamic is just so tricky, too. I think there was something that came out recently that if you are going from the SBC and edict that said any church plants had to sign that they wouldn't hire women to be in Yeah, leadership. the North American Baptist uh, Missionary or North American Missionary Board. I can't. I can't get all those names straight. But it was their like domestic uh, arm of for missions mm-hmm. in the SBC. I just what kept flashing through my head was that scene in Little Rascals where they have the He Man Woman Hating Club and they like roll up their little ladder to the clubhouse and Darla can't get in. <laughs> That's what it felt like. It I'm does. like, what? I looked at my calendar. Like, what year is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, continue to roll the calendar back, Autumn, uh, all the way back to probably the golden age for people like them. That would be the 1950s. <laughs> but the problem with that, you know, you were talking about the sexual abuse thing. It's it's a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And that is at the heart of this whole issue. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So. So, uh, you know, the SBC, we'll see what happens uh, with them. But there was somebody in the middle of all of that controversy that I was glad who was there, so writing about this and combating the rise of fundamentalism with truth. And that is our good friend, Marv Knox. Marv is about to retire from Fellowship Southwest after a great period of time as their leader, but before he was the executive coordinator for Fellowship Southwest. He was in faith-based journalism, more recently 20 years as editor of the Baptist Standard in Texas. He is a great uh, man of faith, a great journalist, and a great leader within the Baptist cause, and I think you're going to really enjoy as Autumn and I sat down with Marv this week. So stay tuned for that interview. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of The Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode... We're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special friend of the pod. Marv Knox became the founding leader of the Fellowship Southwest in 2017 after a four-decade career in Baptist journalism, including almost 20 years as editor of the Baptist Standard in Texas. He's a graduate of Hardin-Simmons University and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's worked at the Baptist Home Mission Board in Georgia, Southern Seminary in Kentucky, the Baptist Messenger in Louisiana, Baptist Press in Tennessee, and Western Recorder in Kentucky. Which Baptist paper did you not work for? <laughs> He's been involved with CBF since its founding and served on its BWA task force. He and his wife live in Coppell, Texas, but have soon other horizons. And so we are excited to have Marv Knox on the podcast. Marv, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of what y'all do and um, greatly appreciate your good work. And so it's fun to talk to you today. Well, Marv, there's so many things that we want to talk to you about, but we've got to get this out of the way. You are retiring. Yeah, that's kind of hard to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) I still think of myself as about, I told my brother today, I still think of myself as about 32. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, that's just kind of early career still. There should be a lot more going, but you know, I got tired thinking about all those jobs you you rattled off that I've held through the years, which the one unmistakable conclusion is, boy, this guy's old. He's been around <laughs> for a long time. Well, you know who's going to be the most excited about this podcast is our folks playing Baptist bingo at home, because you just hit a whole row. Anyone who was listening is going to clear their cards right now. There we go. Good. I'm glad I can get the game over and they can go on to brunch or whatever. Well, Marv, congratulations. I know it's a little bit bittersweet because you love what you're doing right now, but it's also exciting to see this new venture in your in your horizon. And so, I mean, you're, you're currently, you've lived in Texas for several decades now, but you got to move. You're, you're, you're going to take off and, and, and leave the Lone Star State. Yeah, we are. We're, uh, we're heading to uh, Durham, North Carolina, the end of uh, November. Uh, we uh, have two daughters. One lives in uh, just South of Austin, Texas in Buda, uh, Texas. And then the other lives in, in Durham and, uh, uh, they've been, she's been after us for a long time to live near them when we retire. And uh, they seem to be um, permanent there, it looks like. And uh, we don't really want to do this twice. So yeah. uh, it looks like it'll be a good fit. We couldn't get any of the, our kiddos or, uh, to drink the stay in North Texas Kool-Aid like so many <laughs> of our friends did. So uh, with, with, without our, our children and grandchildren around, we decided, well, we'll move somewhere. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. Well, that's that's going to be exciting. It's so exciting. And, you know, we have been talking some, actually, he was one of our very first podcast guests was Stephen Reeves. And mm-hmm. you're sort of leaving your legacy in his hands. Tell us a little bit about that. Thanks for saying it that way. I really think that uh, Fellowship Southwest is really about to take off with uh, Stephen's uh, leadership. It's It's been the, I've, I've had a lovely, wonderful career. I've been far beyond anything I could have ever dreamed or imagined. Uh, particularly getting to come back to Texas and be the editor of the of the newspaper I read since I was a little boy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and but but to to get to launch Fellowship Southwest, work with CBF directly, uh, has just been um, the delight, uh, and um, I uh, feel so fortunate to have had this opportunity. Uh, we were tasked to be uh, ecumenical from the start, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, and to kind of expand CBF's relationships uh, throughout the American Southwest and now Northern Mexico. 
And uh, Stephen, just as, as y'all know from uh, interviewing him and know his work, has such um, a great history in doing advocacy, which is by its nature ecumenical, and uh, uh, such a great network among Baptists and beyond, and uh, just such an amazing talent. So I, uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where Fellowship Southwest will go. And, uh, you know, I kind of got it started and gave it a nudge, but I, I really do believe that the uh, opportunities for doing the things we've dreamed about uh, will really be, uh, uh, will be taking off uh, under Stephen's leadership. Well, Marv, you'll be happy to know, even though Stephen Reeves is a longhorn, this Okie is willing to work with him in the future. As is this Aggie. <laughs> You know, so that's a hard one, isn't it? Okay, who's making the bigger sacrifice? Aggie? Yeah, that's right. Uh, or, 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 or the sooner. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Exactly. You know, so, yeah. And, and the problem with all of you, and so y'all know, so I went to Hardin-Simmons. Right. We didn't even have a football team when I was a student there, is um, that, that you can all three be equally obnoxious at appropriate times. <laughs> oh, for sure. But at least we're yeah. not a Baylor bear. Oh, wow. See, see what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, case bear. in point. You uh, just made his point, Adam. <laughs> uh, well, Marv, you have, I mean, obviously the last uh, several years you've been leading Fellowship uh, Southwest, but uh, I want to dig a little deeper into your career because for several decades, you were one of the leaders in faith-based journalism. And so let's just kind of begin there. I mean, you know, you've seen a lot. You've written about a lot of issues uh, that have come across your desk. Uh, what do you think is, what do you think has changed over your career when it comes to the church and people of faith as you have covered over these decades? Yeah, everything. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. just about. I mean, from my own field, um, we still sent, I, I remember I worked for the Baptist Home Mission Board at, uh, right out of college. We moved to Atlanta, and I would type on an old telex machine, which the technology of a telex machine was probably early 20th century yeah. uh, and, and still using to send uh, the stories that we sent to Baptist Press, and they printed them and mailed them, and then the newspapers received them and mailed them. And they got there. So, you know, news was still news because people hadn't heard it, even though it was, you know, sometimes two, three weeks old. Mm -hmm. That's just on that side of, you know, but church life has just, has just changed. Uh, I, I can remember I was, a, I was a summer missionary between my junior and senior years. I worked in Colorado for the Rocky Mountain Baptist, the newspaper up there, uh, just what a kick. I got to spend 10 weeks just traveling all over Colorado in a old VW Beetle. But there was a night, this was, you know, a million years before cell phones and all of this. And I was supposed to go to Montrose, Colorado and spend the night with the area director of missions. Uh, I mean, this is a tiny town. There was one gas station, a few buildings and nothing. And I'm in this old VW Beetle uh, don't have a phone, keep walking into the gas station to borrow their phone. Nobody answers, nobody answers, nobody answers. And, you know, and so then I thought, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, Southern Baptists are almost everywhere. All I have to do is find the local pastor and say, I want to sleep on his couch and I will get to do that. Sure. Zero money, yeah. no credit card. And, and so I did. And, you know, he didn't know me from anybody, but he said, sure, come on over. And, and so there was a broad still a broad 
patina of trust, at least, mm -hmm. across the, the, the Southern Baptist range in some ways. And we all had the same Sunday school lesson every Sunday. We all sang out of the same hymn book. We most all of us still all read the same King James Version of the Bible. Uh, a lot of homogeneity about that. A lot of things that um, y'all have talked about on your podcast before that were were wrong with our culture and our lives and our way of looking at things. But there was a comfortable homogeneity. Sure. Uh, the next summer is when the Southern Baptist Convention began to split. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I I I went to work for Baptists six weeks after Adrian Rogers won the first election uh, as president. Wow. Uh, you know, so if, if we could know, so the Baptist world's turned upside down, congregational life is turned upside down. Uh, and, um, it, it's really, uh, I guess the faith delivered to the saints is the same, but how we, how we live it out and reflect it, it, it just seems like everything has changed quite a bit. So I've got a little bit of a litany of questions I want to ask you about your journalism career, because again, like you, like I said a moment ago, you've seen and heard so many things throughout your career. Um, what do you think is the most significant story that you covered as a journalist? Oh, the split of the Southern Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. uh, because we're still living that out. Even, even those of us who moved on, uh, we, we still come back under the shadow of that. We might not think about it all the time. Some people think journalists think about that stuff all the time. And I felt like I rarely do. But I think cooperative Baptists are, are still 30-something years later trying to figure out what we really think being Baptist and being faithful and being Christian, uh, being ecumenical in our case, is all about. It, it's still shaped by that. And, uh, and I had a ringside seat that particularly that period of about uh, four and a half years when I was at Baptist Press, uh, uh, another one of those near misses, I went to work in Kentucky uh, the 1st of June, and six weeks later, uh, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention fired the other two uh, colleagues that I had been working with for the previous years at Baptist Press. Um, and so then, from a state paper perspective, where we had the freedom still to continue to cover, we we covered that story and it still rolled on for, you know, for years and years in very active mode and now in more of a passive uh, sure. mode. They're still trending on Twitter. <laughs> the SBC. Well, yeah, they really have been this, this summer. Yeah, they they have. Uh, I've, I've found that, you know, I, I used to could name every state convention exec, every head of every agency, all that. Cause that was just, I had to live in that right. all the time. Uh, and now major players, I, you know, I've never even heard of. So I have to, you know, yeah. Uh, call somebody up and say, who is this? Because I haven't heard of them before. So, Marv, for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the Baptist uh, ecosystem, some of our listeners who may not have been born during the controversy <laughs> and stuff, no doubt. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, good for them. Lucky them, right? Um, here you have the largest Protestant denomination in the world being taken over by right-wing fundamentalists. It was a significant turning point obviously within the SBC, but also culturally. Mm -hmm. At what point during that process, as you were covering those stories, as they, they just unfolded summer after summer, at what point did you realize everything had changed? That, that's a great question. I, I, the first one that comes to mind, and probably, you know, this evening I'll think of another, I'll call you up and tell you, <laughs> oh, well, but I left this out, uh, was uh, the summer of 1987. 
uh, there had been for two years of what was called a peace committee designed to try to find some reconciliation uh, in a way forward. And, and, and we were we had been covering that actively. My colleague then, Dan Martin, uh, went to all of their meetings and we reported on that and the things that came out of it. And uh, they were getting ready to make their report. And there was a minority opinion that would have been the quote unquote representing the so-called minority perspective. And they, uh, I guess appealing for unity, decided not to make a minority report. And so then the fundamentalists spun that like that again, that it was like there was just this broad con uh, consensus. See, we were right in calling, uh, you know, these seminary professors who dedicated their lives to, to Christ and the Bible and the church as heretics and that sort of thing. And I think when the Peace Committee, um, the minority group decided not to put another perspective on the table, that, that's when I knew these guys have a bulldozer and they're going to run over everything and nothing's going to stand in their way. Mm. Wow. Well, those of us who lived through it and uh, you were closer to it than any of us uh, just uh, you know, are still heartbroken that all that took place. Good mm -hmm. friends of ours uh, yeah. losing their jobs, uh, just their, their character assassinated in public uh, untruth, untruthfully. It was just just such a heartache to see. So, well, yeah. I, for one, am thankful that you were there covering it and telling telling it like it is, as one journalist used to say. <laughs> well, I, it you know, it was a pleasure, and it was just a, it was this surreal experience to be a reporter in that era, particularly when I was still at Baptist Press, um, and um, probably if I hadn't gotten that job, um, we, we, Joanna and I decided, uh, we were living in Nashville, of course, at the time, that we would have come back uh, and um, cashed in all our vacation at one time, and I would have come back here to Dallas-Fort Worth area and just looked for any job. We, we, we knew I couldn't go on, and you know, I've often wondered if when Dan Martin and, and Al Shackelford, my colleagues, got fired, if, uh, you know, if, if they would have kept the boy, I was significantly younger than they were, just to keep the wheels rolling. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I had two little uh, children, preschoolers, and, and um, I, you know, I thought I, I couldn't, I don't know if I could afford to have just quit without a severance and, and protected my family. I would have had to maybe moon the executive committee or something on their way out the door to provoke them to fire me. I don't know. But, but, but God was good. I, I had gone to seminary in Kentucky and I got to go back to Kentucky. And those were, those were wonderful days, both personally and, uh, and uh, as our family with so many good friends and, and uh, the bluegrass state that remained that way. And, uh, and, but I had survivor guilt, you know, uh, sure. out of that because uh, these people that I loved and I knew they were just, full of integrity and honesty and, and loved, uh, loved Baptists, loved the denomination, loved churches. Um, and they were, you know, they were booted out and, and really, frankly, neither one of them ever had an opportunity, anything like that had before to, uh, to be of service. Marv, let's switch gears a little bit and yeah. a little bit more on the positive side. What is one of the, the stories that has brought you the most joy in covering? Yeah. Well, so um, I, I think I've covered it. This is a trick question in a way, or, or I'm, it's a trick answer, okay. uh, Mitch. And, and that is because we've continued to do, uh, to publish a newsletter 
I, once a journalist, I couldn't get away from it. And so we've, we've put out uh, information every week through Fellowship Southwest. But the, the story of the ministry on the border uh, by these pastors that live down there, small congregations, and are just sacrificially uh, serving the migrants on the border is probably the one that's given me the most joy. Uh, that's a, that, Like I say, it's a little bit of a trick answer because I've been part of it and reporting it. Um, but, but I think also just to, um, uh, to, to report, um, how people have moved forward after hard times and, and how, uh, we, um, uh, try to, to, to present the gospel, to live out our faith and, understandable discernible meaningful impactful ways uh and so uh my my favorite story is this is a template for my favorite story and this has happened a number of times is when i write a story about a specific ministry and then someone else tells me uh we read that and we decided our church could do that and so we've started doing that in our community mm. and that's happened a number of times uh, one church, they 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 baked casseroles and they kept them stored at the church in the freezer so that they could respond immediately to uh, to people. Uh, closed closets and and local ministries and those sorts of things, uh, showing how that is done and happened, and then that uh, the testimony of that inspires other people. That's that's always been a fun thing. That's not one big cosmic thing, but that sure. kind of story is always just a hoot to get to tell. Well, Marv, I'm going to ask you about uh, your hope for the church here in just a second. But before we get to the hope, um, I just want to ask you, again, as a journalist, as a denominational leader now leading Fellowship Southwest uh, for several years, um, the pandemic has revealed a lot about the state of the church. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. not only here in the West, but just globally. Um, as someone who has led Baptist for decades, what would you, how would you assess the state of the church at this current moment? I, I would say it's precarious um, and yet uh, probably more resilient than we expect. Um, and I say that on several levels. Uh, some churches have... Uh, you know, pretty much stayed even. That's that's like surprising. A lot, almost all have struggled. I would say I've never known as many pastors as burned out or near being burned out as there are right now, and a good number that are choosing to retire or to do other things. And 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 that is has been and will be a great loss of 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 a, a vital resource or asset to the church. As that happened, and I, I, I pray uh, that, uh, well, like you went on a retreat with pastors not too long ago, Mitch, and, and uh, Fellowship Southwest helped sponsor one of those, some other across CBF, just to kind of restore some hope and bring some, uh, some uh, rejuvenation to, sure. to clergy. And so there's that and the finances and that sort of thing. But I've also seen churches that maybe we might not have expected to to, uh, to, to weather this storm have done so better than they expected mm -hmm. um, because it called out the best in them. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is I've always been a, 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 
fans too strong a word, but there there are times when, well, Joanna used to say when 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 I was in a bad mood or going through a hard time, she kind of waited for me to hit bottom because she knew I, I would bounce. Right. Uh, and and I think that we've seen congregations hit bottom and bounce, and I think that a lot of times going through seasons like this the best thing that happens is it gives us permission to change. And if we'd rocked along with a little bit of equilibrium, we wouldn't, we could deny that we needed to change when we really did. Sure. Uh, and we might've put it off another, I'm saying we as a symptomatic congregation, right. for, say, for example, yeah. uh, and, and put it off for another 10 or 15 years, and then it would be too late. And then that pastor would become the chaplain who buried everybody and closed the doors. Yeah. And I think we're, we're going to see some congregations who, uh, now have permission to say, let's do things differently. Let's try things differently. And so I, I expect to see some resilience out of that, some rejuvenation in places maybe we don't expect. Do you think that the church is going to have to be more vocal and clear about their stance or their interpretation of Scripture when it comes to some of the more critical issues of today, because not only did we go through this global pandemic that has just brought so much stress and anxiety on the church, but we had the Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, these deaths. We had this social uprising calling for, for racial justice across the country. The LGBTQ issue is not going away. Climate change seems to be ramping up. Uh, the great work that Fellowship Southwest is doing on the border, uh, immigration, which is a larger human migration issue around the world. Mm -hmm. um, these issues are at the front and center of what everyday people are reading about and thinking about. Do you think that the church is in a unique position to speak out on these issues in a very gracious, thoughtful, and hopeful way in order to become, and I think it's never been, the church has never been uh, less germane, but I also think it could be more germane to the world that it ministers within. Yeah. And I, I agree, and and to me, a, a huge key will be courage. Um, uh, and um, I, 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 their their pastors, I love and and uh, uh, care deeply for, and their their sole um, aspiration often seems to be peace. Uh, and I'm I'm not for fighting, but if uh, peace is the is a great. Uh, deterrent to to courage and prophetic uh speaking to issues and uh i i feel like we if we don't address those issues we become increasingly irrelevant uh to our communities and particularly to the rising generation of of young adults and and teenagers um you know they, they they're they're watching us and uh are we really living out the gospel we we say we believe in? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're all looking, I think, uh, this is, how do I say this? It's hard to say. White people are looking at race differently than we did yeah. uh, of just a few years ago. Right. Even those of us who felt like we were progressive, uh, felt like we had biblical positions on race, uh, I think we've all just learned a lot. Oh. Uh, uh, and, uh and I, I pray that we not only learn, but we have courage on that issue, that we have courage on how we treat all people 
uh, and uh, migrants, uh, people with, uh, with, with, with all kinds of issues that might uh, externally define them, right. uh, that we look at the, at, the, at the human soul underneath that is created in God's image and is lovely and beautiful, and, and we are inclusive and caring and compassionate. I think we have a great opportunity if we can do that. And, we, and that, again, that's back to some of these churches that I've sure. seen that I feel like have made an impact have said this. This is not a crisis. It's an opportunity, yeah. uh, and we'll live into it. And they found consensus around it, uh, so that they could do it with a with a unified voice. Uh, well, speaking it, of those, the op- first step is courage. Yeah. Speaking out of those opportunities, I'm going to turn it over to Autumn because she's a lot more uh, sunshine and rainbows than I am. So, <laughs> well, you know, I was just listening to what you were saying, and that you know, peace is sort of a buzzword. It's one of the fruits of the spirit, for heaven's sake. So, of course, mm-hmm. we know that. But do you think sometimes we in the church mistake um, our silence for peace? And we yeah, sort of lean you, on that? Yeah. I mean, if, it, it can feel like you got peace just because people aren't yelling at each other. They don't come into, uh, you know, come into, uh, into the church house, you know, frowning or whatever, or they don't fight in the parking lot on their way out or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, uh, peace. You know, I mean, shalom is a, is a much deeper, richer thing than no fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and so to me, it, it seems sometimes we have to go through the hard stuff and be willing to have difficult, challenging conversations. I think they can be conducted in an ironic spirit, but uh, can, can get us there. But if it's just, oh, if we can just get through the next six months or the next year and we don't yell at each other, we won't be any better off mm-hmm. if that's just our end game. We just you gave a perfect example of that just moments ago when you talked about that pivotal moment in the SBC mm-hmm. where the liter- very literally peace committee, part of that committee decided to be silent. Right. And in that silence, it was just the, the flood of fundamentalism just broke through. And yeah. so was that truly peace? It was you know, it was basically a takeover and uh, a demand for everybody else to be silent and just to shut up and you know, do what we say kind of mentality. Yeah, the, the, it, it's, it's tempting for people of a certain mindset to underestimate uh, the adversary and their propensity for progressive uh, conflict or progressive evil. Uh, and so, you know, we look to... We look to martyrs and saints who stood up to that as the ones that we revere, not the ones that got that that pretended nothing happened. Right. I mean, we could talk, you know, for a long time just about World War II, Neville Chamberlain yep. versus um, you know other people, uh, and 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 who was courageous and who did the right thing. Well, the ones that stood up to evil, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, and I, I realize that's a dangerous thing. You know, I always want to. You know, it's human nature to say the people that disagree with me, well, they're evil. Uh, but but I do believe there is evil in the world, and there is oppression, and there is injustice. And uh, the, the 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 prophets and Jesus all clearly call us to be on the side of the underdog and the mm-hmm. oppressed. And Love that. that takes courage. It, sure. It's countercultural, particularly yep. in these days. Absolutely. All right, Autumn, let's yeah. uh, shine, some sh- or shine some sun on this Let, one. Let's do it. So. You know, just thinking about your track record and your history, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in looking back over, you know, your career, you watching the Baptist and our our peaks and our valleys, what is your more to tell for our audience today? 
You know, so I th- I knew you were going to ask me that. And I, <laughs> I had a hard time narrowing it down. I think I've, I've pointed toward the one is there's more than we see and more than we can hope. Mm. Uh, and, and that there is, as Mitch said, there is a ray of sunshine out there. I believe that the gospel is redemptive. And I believe uh, in Romans 8, 28, that God is working with us to redeem even awful situations. Uh, I get suckered in by reading news. I'm a news junkie, and I just have to tell myself, you got to stop because there's no end to things that will make me depressed right now. Mm. But I do believe uh, in, the, in the power of, of love, and I do believe in the resilience of people of faith, uh, and that when times get hard, their faithfulness speaks louder than anything else they could ever say. And so I think the more to tell is that we're going to see that kind of thing. We'll see it in the border. We're seeing it now. And I think the kind of thing that's happening out of weakness has come great compassion and mercy and redemption. And I think we'll see that with some of our churches that may think that their best days are past and they'll find out they've never been more vital because they live into the moment. Love that. Well, Marv, we're not going to let you uh, get away with uh, just sitting on a uh, uh, front porch and rocking the rest of your life away. I know you've got big plans uh, being a grandfather, and you're a volunteer with us here at Good Faith Media, serving as our chair for our News and Opinion Council and our Strategic Advisory Board. We thank you for your service uh, in that. You're, You're involved in so many other organizations. But on behalf of GFM and our organizations, Thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you've done. You are an inspiration and one of the kindest, gentlest, and Christian men that I've ever met. So thank you for being who you are. Thank you, Mitch. That means more than I can express. Thank you very much. And and y'all keep on. You're doing such great work, inspiring so many people, educating us, helping us to think new thoughts, and I'm so grateful for what y'all do. Marv Knox, the soon-to-be former executive uh, director for the Fellowship Southwest. You can find out more about Fellowship Southwest at fellowshipsouthwest.org. Make certain you check him out. And to our audience, we want to thank you for tuning in this week. As always, keep living good faith.